Good morning, Springville. Uh, great to be back. Um, we are on a bit of a journey as a church in this series uh, called Feel Free. We're actually going to wrap up the series uh, today. Everyone makes an audible sigh, of like, oh, right? Um, but, but really, this is just scratching the surface of the topic of emotional maturity and spiritual maturity and the relationship between those two things. So I know that from many that I've spoken to, this has really struck a chord with us as a church. This has really started to begin a bit of a journey for some of us, and it's also given many of us permission to start thinking and processing things a bit differently. So let me just encourage you, this might be something that we revisit every year because we need it. We need to just kind of take our emotions, our emotional world and our thought world and kind of turn it around and look at it and figure out how to actually be aware of that but bring it to God as well. So this series really has not been exhaustive but it has tried to bring an awareness but also maybe just give us a couple ways to start thinking about this. Maybe two tools to start processing our emotions differently. Uh, Today, as I've thought about how to wrap this up for us and not really close the topic, but to kind of propel us forward, um, I wanted to just, again, revisit what we've been seeing so far. And kind of our thesis statement is just that we can't become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, right? So to become spiritually mature disciples of Jesus, to follow after Jesus is to be kind of matured in Christ-likeness and to become an emotionally mature person because so much of our world happens within our emotions. How we process life, where we're coming from and where we're headed sits on and relies on our emotional world. The Christian life is not simply just about what we do or even just how we feel, but it's about who we are becoming, right? And so much of what we're experiencing in life and, how, and who we're becoming is wrapped up in our emotions. So I wanted to share, uh, I've shared a little bit from Pete Schizero throughout this series on emotionally healthy spirituality. Um, there's a, an assessment tool that he uses for churches and individuals called the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Assessment. And you can do it online for free. And what it does, it's a really helpful thing. I've done it many times over the years just to get a gauge on where I'm at. It just kind of helps get a read accurately and truthfully on my own dashboard emotionally. And so this week, I would just encourage you, if you want to continue kind of in this journey of exploring how to understand your own dashboard, specifically in how it impacts your relationship with God and with others, I would encourage you to take a look at that this week. But I want to share a couple just examples of what it shows us about emotional maturity. So he has this scale of after you do this assessment tool, you come out at somewhere between like emotional infancy all the way up to emotional adulthood. And there's kind of a spectrum, a scale of how that shows up in our lives, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. I want to share two examples. I want to show you what it, what it looks like to kind of understand our emotions as at the child stage, but then also at the adult stage. And remember, if you hear some of this and you're like, that's me, that's a good thing. This is self-awareness. It's not for, for guilt and shame to feel like, oh, I really need to, I need to hurry up and grow. It's to just understand where you currently are, right? So emotional childhood sounds something like this. You're content when life is going your way, but quickly experience a bit of an unraveling with disappointments or unexpected things or stress. You often take things personally Interpret disagreements or criticism, even if it's constructive, as a personal offense or an attack on you as a person. You tend to complain or withdraw or blame others when faced with troubling situations or challenges. 
And spiritually, you tend to live off, kind of like siphon off the fumes of other people's spirituality because you are in a season where you're too distracted or overwhelmed. And often your prayer life is wrapped up with talking to God about problems and not necessarily communing with him and his presence. See that snapshot of what it shows us about the integration of emotions and spirituality? And I'll give you a second example of kind of emotional adulthood. This is just showing a certain level of maturity and awareness in our emotions with our spiritual uh, life, okay? Respects and loves others without having to change them or become judgmental towards them. You, you strive to value people for who they are, not for what they can give or what they can do. So you see people as people, not just means to an end. You take responsibility for your own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. And you can state your beliefs and values to those who disagree without becoming adversarial or defensive. You have an accurate picture of your self-awareness. You're able to actually read your dashboard well and accurately. And you're able to also assess your limits, your strengths, your weaknesses. You are secure in your relationship with God through Christ and not reliant on others to validate you and who you are for your purpose and your identity. And your Christian life is defined more by loving Christ and enjoying communion with him than what you can do for him. I just provide that. I think that's a helpful way to think about this relationship that we've been exploring over the last few weeks to understand how integrated kind of emotional world, our world is with our spiritual health and maturity. Do you see that overlap happening there? And here's what I want to finish our series off, just our, our first exploration of this today. If the goal of physical health is living well, then the goal of our emotional health is loving well. That our emotional world is so wrapped up in, if we are loving the right things in the right order or in the right way. That when you really boil down what it means to follow Jesus and be transformed into the image of Christ, it really means that we are loving well and that loving well is the picture of maturity. Are you with me on that? That we're able to assess what we're giving our lives to how we're loving, who we're loving, and then putting those in the right order. That we would understand that, that a lot of the things that we wrestle with, the challenges that we face, is because it's a disordering of our love. It's a disordering of what we've given ourselves to. And following after Jesus is to actually come to us and show us that this gospel good news reorders and just recalibrates all of the way that we love. And it starts with love for God, Love for one another, and then love for others in that order. And that there's all sorts of emotional challenges that get wrapped up in that. And I think in the past in the church, why we have struggled to address emotions as part of maturity or the relationship there is that we've been able to kind of just cover things up and say that Christian maturity means like Bible knowledge, knowing lots of Bible verses, or serving, or giving, or just spending you know, a lot of time in ministry, or doing ministry service for others, that, that that in and of itself means that you're mature. Now, those things are an expression of Christian growth and maturity, but you can do all of those things and still remain an emotional infant, and that that's going to bleed out into our relationships that we can't control it, that it's going to eventually, we can push it down, we can try to ignore it, but the conflict of that tension inside will eventually bleed out. 
And Jesus has an invitation for us to integrate our emotional and spiritual worlds in the way that we understand the same, the same way that he did. That, that, that invitation to go and actually feel, to, to see, to understand our emotions like Jesus does. The full spectrum of them. To feel good emotions when it's good and to feel bad emotions when things are bad. To actually be able to feel the right things at the right time, right? So in Mark 12, I want to show us this invitation to really just kind of get at the foundation of what it means to understand following after Jesus. But then also for us, right? That, that there's an outward working of this. Sometimes we can talk about emotions and we get so self-focused, right? That we just kind of look, my emotional world, and I got to figure that it makes our, our, our world smaller. But emotional maturity actually starts to make our world bigger. That it actually turns outwards to one another, to us right here as brothers and sisters, and then to the way that we relate to the world. Watch how Jesus describes this in Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes approached Jesus when he had heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. Jesus' posture during this conversation is like, oh, he's very approachable. I'm going to approach Jesus, right? And he saw that Jesus answered them well, and he asked him, Jesus, which command is the most important of all? So remember, this guy knows the Bible up and down, back and forth, left to right. And he's like, which thing is most important? Just tell me. Boil the Christian message. The entire thing that you're about, Jesus, boil it right down to what's most important. And Jesus answered him, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And then verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. I love that. Like Jesus isn't going to play, right? Jesus is going to play my games of, of sitting on Twitter, right? And just doing this with Jesus, right? Jesus isn't going to play. But you notice his answer. When he's asked about what's most important, there's something here that, that's really important for us to understand the overlap and integration of our, of our lives, about who we are becoming. The goal of the Christian life is about who we are becoming as men and women, that we are becoming people, who love God with all our heart, our desires and our affections, all our soul, the meta dimension that makes us who we are, our true identity, that we would love God with all our mind, our beliefs and our will together, and with all of our strength, that we would live in light of that reality and then structure our lives around being formed into Christ-likeness with our energy and our habits. That's massive. The gospel starts with acknowledging that we need a new mind, that we need a new heart, that we need a brand new lifting up of our soul, and that we need a new way to live. Amen? That's right here. That's all wrapped up right here. And the gospel starts with acknowledging that the default heart, soul, strength, and mind that we have as human beings are all defective, that they're incomplete and defective maps to get us to what Jesus calls life to the full. That what Jesus calls wholeness. Jesus' invitation here is to turn away from those things. That's repentance. That we would turn away from all of those other incomplete, defective maps. And that we would go his way with him. And he promises nothing less than a redirection of our love. A renovation of our heart. Rest for our souls. A renewal of our minds. And a reframing of our effort. 
And that has everything to do with how we understand our inner thought world, emotions, and how we relate to those around us. Because our relationships have a huge impact on our emotional world and vice versa. And we've just started to kind of scratch the surface of what that looks like for some of us. But if you really pay attention to the redemptive story across scripture, our core problem is a disordering of our love, right? That we give our lives to lesser things. At root, when you look at sin and the sinful condition of the human heart, sin isn't just simply doing bad things, right? Doing bad stuff. It's a disordering of what we want to do. It's a disordering of what we love and give our lives to. It's an overvaluing of lesser things so that we're not actually focused on better things. That's at the core of this. James K.A. Smith wrote a book called uh, You Are What You Love. And that's exactly his point getting at kind of the inner world of our hearts and our minds and the integration of that, but the impact of sin on all of that. And he says this, since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart you can't not love. You are in the end what you love. And I think that's this that Jesus is inviting us to redirect our love, to understand what is truly ultimate and that that decision to go after and give my life to the things that I deem worthy of my life is going to impact every part of me. My mind, my beliefs, my heart, my relationship, all of that is rooted on the pursuit of what I see worthy of my life. So what we love gets the most of us. We give our lives to what or who we love most. Now, when we talk about love, when Jesus is talking about loving, right, you know, God with all of your, love is an interesting word today because we've kind of emptied it of its value and then we we just kind of like fill it with other ways to understand it. Jesus speaks about love very differently than we do today in our culture and he also demonstrates it very differently than we tend to. Today, if you think about love, it's kind of just, well, you look it up in the dictionary and it's like, well, it's an intense passion or interest in something and you're like, yeah, kind of, right? But, but you'd hope it was more than that, right? Uh, in, in our culture, we say things like, you know, love is somebody completing you. Or love is something that happens to you, right? So you fall in and then you fall out of love. So it's just kind of like this uncontrollable force that you fall in and out of. We also see a different kind of practical use of love in our culture where love is tolerance. Love equals acceptance of anything and everything that somebody thinks or believes or acts upon, right? That, that love just is tolerance. Now, what happens if we have love as tolerance or acceptance, you, you quickly will understand that you won't be able to love anybody that you don't agree with, right? That, that love, loving somebody that you disagree with, that, that we struggle with that. And today in our culture, we struggle with that big time. So what we end up doing is we only love people that we like, right? So we only, we only decide we're going to love people that we like. And then in that process, we end up just loving ourselves because we're only going to give love to people who are exactly like us in the first place. And so see, we have all these kinds of things wrapped up. And ultimately, we have one word for love in English, and it's love. And so that doesn't help us. But thankfully, throughout scripture, there's lots of different Hebrew and Greek words for love. And Jesus uses these words very intentionally when he talks about different expressions of his love. If I said to you, I love my wife, hip-hop, and spicy chicken sandwiches, you would better hope those are different loves, amen? Because <laughs> if Raquel, my love for Raquel is on the same level as spicy chicken sandwiches, we got some problems, 
right? Marriage counseling is on the way. But there's different types of love. We know that, but it's not intuitive because we struggle to define it. So what is Jesus getting at here when he's telling us to actually love the Lord our God with with all of these aspects, these dimensions of who we are? Well, John 13, he shows us exactly what he's getting at. John 13, verse 34, he says this to his disciples, as followers of Jesus, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone else will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now listen, there are certain verses that I read, and I'm like, I wish it didn't say that. This is one of those. I wish Jesus would have just went like, hey, just go love each other. And you're like, awesome. I can define what that means. I can just decide what kind of love or what type of love I'm going to share, right, based on what I deem worthy in this person or this situation. But notice what he said. The flies are back? Wow. That's not what he said. (laughs) Notice what he said. He said, go and love each other. And then he followed it up with this really disturbing addition. Just as I have loved you. Now he does that to qualify and define the type of love that he is getting at. And if you know where we are in John 13, the setting is the Last Supper. This is the eve of his crucifixion. And Jesus just finished doing something really significant when he told his disciples, love each other just like I loved you. He just finished interrupting dinner to go around and wash his disciples' feet. He just interrupted dinner to go disciple to disciple, foot by foot, and take on the filthiness and vulnerability of them onto himself in self-giving service. And then he says, go and love each other like that. Now, this is strange timing that he does this. This is really weird. This is like swan song. He's got one more opportunity to leave his disciples, right, with the thing that's really going to burn into their mind. He could have done anything. He could have healed a few more people. He could have turned more water to wine. He could have preached that one last sermon that they would be like, man, that one was a banger. That was the sermon that I remember, right? He could have done any of that, but he chooses to show love by self-giving service. What we love the most gets the most of us. He could have done anything, but he enters the world of his disciples to show love. He doesn't just get up and go, I love you. Like that, that's easy, right? That doesn't require anything. He, he, he sh- tells them over and over again that he loves them, but then he also shows them. He enters into their world to show his love. That's a mental picture and a foreshadow of what he is about to do the very next day on the cross. That he is going to lay his life down on behalf of his disciples. Not merely as a sacrifice, but specifically as a demonstration of his love. And he does it via foot washing. In an honor and shame culture of the first century, this was a job very undesirable. And it was specifically for non-Jewish slaves. So Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, wouldn't even have his own disciples do that because they were Jewish disciples. Yet here he is, the master of the apprentices, right? The Jedi master going and actually serving those Padawans that are under him. Anybody give me an amen on that one? Yeah, okay, good. Nerds. 
But then he says, go and love like this. And the Greek word he uses is agape. Some of us are familiar with that. That's a very specific word for this kind of love. That this love doesn't just have sentimentality or emotions or feels or Hallmark Christmas movies attached to it, right? That agape is, is a demonstration. That agape shows up. That agape gives. It's not just a feeling, it's a choice. It's not just sentimentality, it's action. It's to actually move towards others in self-giving service. It's love coming at you with no strings attached. And Jesus loves like this. John 3.16, we know the verse. It's painted on bellies at the NFL games. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That word is agape. That God's love leads to giving. That we give our lives to what we love most. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us, agape. That while we were yet sinners, running around loving other stuff in our disordered way, that Christ gave up his life for us. That this love is freely given. And the reason why God's love is freely given is because it's to show us that it's not based on who we are or what we've done at all. That love freely given cannot be lost. Love freely given cannot be taken back because it doesn't ride on the, the person receiving that love. That's this. But notice that he shows his love by entering into our world. Is that not just the message of Christmas? Like we're about to hear about that, right? We've been hearing about that all Advent. That the miracle of Christmas isn't just, you know, the miracles around the timing and, and the virgin birth and all that kind of stuff, which is like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that, right? But the miracle of Christmas is that God entered our world. That that personally, relationally, emotionally entered into our world. So rather than just stand back outside of it and say, come to me, worship me, truthfully, that he enters into our world, sympathizes, empathizes, incarnates himself into everything that you and I experience as human beings, as men and women. And then he says, I'm here to save you. That's the miracle. He shows his love by fully entering our world. That God's love is by definition incarnational. John 1 verse 14 Usually a Christmas verse, right? That God became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. There's one translation that says that God moved into the neighborhood. That God moved in two doors down. And he came full of grace and truth. That the incarnation, God's love, is nothing less than God saying, I've come to save you, now come live with me. That's this. So what does this have to do? Why did I just scream, for 15 minutes. What does this have to do with our emotional maturity and our emotional world? Well, all of the things that we know about emotional intelligence show us that our ability to empathize, our ability to hear our emotions well and also hear others' emotions, our ability to grow in self-awareness is entirely connected to this, to what we give our life to, to, to how we love and especially with our ability to listen well, to, to be present with another person, to empathize with people. All the research is showing us right now is that we are at a rapid rate, especially generationally, losing the ability to have face-to-face -face conversations, to make eye contact, to connect emotionally with one another. 
like the digital age and social media come into play there because we live in a, a really disconnected yet more connected world. So we have this ironic thing happening where actually we have this emotional arm's length away from each other. We don't know what to do with it, but that cultivates apathy. That doesn't cultivate love and empathy. Um, I remember Uche Anazor wrote a book on apathy and he said that we're growing numb to the meaningful and alive to the trivial. And that's true, especially for certain generations. That's just true. The things that get the most out of us really don't matter that much. This leads to a loss of empathy, a decreasing sense of, of purpose, and really an emotional disconnection from ourselves that we don't even know what our dashboard's saying from others and from God especially. All the studies on empathy in particular show that it actually is a social and emotional skill, empathy. It's to accurately capture and hear emotions, that all emotions contain information, and the skill of empathy is to be able to extract that information accurately. That's what empathy does, that we would care about the right things, we'd see things clearly and accurately, and we'd care about the right things, and it would grow in our ability to hear our own emotions, but also others. Scripture shows this in Proverbs 18, 15, says that an intelligent heart, that's interesting language, an intelligent heart, that sounds like emotional maturity, emotional growth, emotional intelligence. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks wisdom. See how connected those are. Uh, James 1, 19 tells the church to be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. You see the emotional expression of anger there being related to our ability to hear, our ability to listen, our ability to enter into someone's world. So here's, here's the point. Listening and the practice and skill of listening cultivates empathy. It cultivates emotional maturity. It cultivates emotional intelligence because empathy is an expression of the incarnation. That empathy is actually an expression of incarnation. That God's incarnational love is that he actually enters into our world. That now we have, as Hebrews 4 tells us, a chief priest who's able to sympathize with us in everything because he's been there. Because he's walked in our shoes. He's walked around in our world. He understands us. Yet lives perfectly integrated, whole in the direction of his love. Freely choosing to enter someone's world is hard, especially emotionally. To make the decision to walk around in someone else's shoes, to see things through their eyes. It's saying to somebody, I want to know what it's like for you, how you feel, what you think, and why. Now, this is a skill for us as a church that I think would radically change our witness to the watching world if we began to practice it. That rather than see threats and enemies and opportunities for disunity and division over things that really don't matter that much, that we would have hearts cultivated in empathy, in incarnational love for one another, and that that would just color our care for one another, that we would walk alongside and in each other's shoes in a way that the watching world would just be like, what? That, that's just so crazy that you're able to love one another like that, enter into each other's world, that you're able to take on each other's burdens. And even with disagreements and things that you don't see eye to eye on always, you're able to say that those things are not what matter most because I'm with you. It's to be present. 
And we see it all over scripture. The call for the church to be united and to pursue unity rests on our ability to enter into each other's world as an expression of the incarnation. And not only does this cultivate empathy in our hearts, but it also guards against apathy. So if one of the biggest things emotionally in our culture right now is just apathetic hearts that just don't feel for the things that matter, but get all worked up about things that don't, then this also guards our hearts against apathy. Sometimes we think about the opposite of love being hate. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not, I hate you. The opposite of love is, I don't care. I don't care. Eh, It doesn't matter to me. You don't matter to me. Your experiences don't matter to me. I don't feel it. It doesn't do anything for me. That's hate. Like, like, like that, that is actually what we see is the opposite of love. An indifference, a callousness, an emotional meh. Just being unmoved by things that, that matter most. Being unmoved by people and their experiences of the world. And scripture tells us that that apathy doesn't just happen out here. It's not because of the internet, right? That that apathy actually starts in our heart. Go read Ephesians 4, chapter 4 this week. And it talks about the callousness of the human heart. Aside from us being completely rocked and rewired by the grace of God, we have hearts that will just continue to grow hard and selfish and turn inwards. And it's so easy. That that's downstream. You want to just grow completely numb to things that matter? Just continue living like everybody else. That's this. Futile minds and a calloused heart is easy. But to have the emotional energy and intention to move towards each other, to open up our worlds because we've already been transformed by the same love of God that entered our world, that's this. Really? My mouth? I'm just going to close. This is ridiculous. I feel very strongly about this fly. Apathy shackles us to ourselves. Empathy binds us to to each other. That's this. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he does exactly this. He explores these four main Greek words for love in the New Testament. That's what he says about this point. To love is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. That's the risk. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. All of the dog lovers, all of the dog parents, I don't know why you call yourself that. That one's for you. (laughs) Don't email me. Wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Do you see the reality of that? That apathy is actually easy. That the drift of our culture is towards just not caring. Not caring about things that matter most. Not caring about the things that matter to God most. Not caring about the things that our creator says are actually the priorities for us to love and give our lives to. That is easy. I remember uh, Cyril Connolly, uh, a writer of the last century, said that the suburbs in particular are incubators for apathy and delirium. Yikes. 
But everybody wants to get to the burbs, right? But suburbs are specifically designed to shut our worlds off from needs, to, to, to have the green grass while others don't, to have the fences while others don't, to have the protection and safety while others don't, to have the wealth and the things and the trinkets that others don't. The burbs are designed for that. But here's the good news. Us right here living in the context that we find ourselves with all that we have. The good news is that if our heart belongs to this God, that God will not let his people not care. That's the good news. That he won't let us not care. That, that there will always be him stimulating the, the, the draw, the pull of empathy. That we would understand his heart and that our heart would be changed and softened and be completely given to things that matter the most. The good news of the gospel is that this God, the true God of scripture and of history says, I care, so I won't let my people not. That's this. So with that in mind, with that new heart, we get to practice this skill. We get to try to live in light of this. We get to learn and practice empathy. And it's tied to our ability to hear well to hear our emotions well, to get an accurate read on what we're feeling and, and, and understand the full spectrum of what these emotions are saying, but then also hear others. Remember, we've talked about emotions as a language, right? Kind of just the, the heart, having the mother tongue of our emotions and figuring all of that out, that it contains something, it's saying something, that we can be honest about that and that God invites us into that space, that he wants to actually meet us there, Right? But emotions also point to beliefs. Emotions also tell stories and flow from stories. All day, every day, we're telling stories about our emotions. We're trying to frame them and place them, right? We, we tell stories about why they didn't call us back. Anyone? <laughs> why they didn't text us back. Why they looked at us that way. Right? We tell a story. Like you walk somebody, by somebody, they, they look at you, and then, and then we tell an entire story as to why their body language was like that towards us. Or what somebody really meant by that. We tell stories about our coworkers, about our friends, about our spouses, about our family members, about strangers, and we tell stories about God. We need to identify false stories in order to empathize well. And that our feelings are so tied to the story. That's why what we think and believe, our minds and our hearts are so integrated. And that there's this constant connection between the two that we have to get clear and we have to understand what's happening between them. Pete Scazzaro, one more time before we're done, said our feelings are closely related to the story we tell ourselves about the things that are going on around us in the world. To quit faulty thinking and maintain good emotional and spiritual health, we must make an intentional decision to stop mind reading and to verify our assumptions by talking to people in person instead of in our heads. Pastor Ed just finished hitting this in our Ten Commandments series on the Ninth Commandment of Bearing False Witness Against Our Neighbors, right? When we decide, when we choose to believe stories that are unconfirmed or uncorroborated, it's that we're bearing false witness. We could be bearing false witness against ourselves or those around us, our neighbors. That's not, bearing false witness is not just about lying. It's about a distortion of reality in any way. It's about believing a reality without checking that that is actually true. Failing to check whether something is true is just choosing to believe something that's false. And that's this. And the amount of emotional weight this puts on relationships, the relational problems and conflicts that this causes, the role that mind reading and assumptions and stories play 
in our day-to-day world is massive. But growing into emotional maturity is to hear those things, to identify what is true and what is false about those things that lie behind my emotions. That we would slow down, that we'd feel what we feel in all of it and identify any stories impacting our emotions. So I'll close with this. I think that this journey that we're on about emotional health, growth, maturity, and how it integrates with our spiritual lives as we follow after Jesus could possibly be one of the biggest witnesses to the watching world that we live in today. I think that this, the, the, the stakes of this are much bigger than us just getting better. The stakes of this are us becoming whole and being a witness to the watching world. That we would have a listening posture in a culture of constant noise and stimulation. That we'd be non-triggered, non-anxious people in such a triggered, anxious, cultural moment. That we'd be emotionally present and mature people in a culture of emotional disjunction and disorder. That our witness relies on this. It's tied to loving well. That we would be building a counterculture here as a community of people that relates maturely to one another, hears one another, are present to each other, and that we actually pursue love for God and love for others in the way that Jesus calls us to. Jesus' farewell discourse in John 15, two chapters after the foot washing, he says this. This is his prayer for you and I, and then I'll pray for us and we're done. But here's what he says in his farewell discourse to his disciples. He leaves his apprentices with this one last word. Remember what picture he left them with about love. And now listen to the prayer that he prays for them. John 15, verse nine. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be whole. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. The primary job description of Jesus' church is to love well. That we would grow in our health as people, that we would be becoming people into his likeness, that we would be shaped and formed into Christ's likeness, growing up into maturity so that we could love him, love each other, and love others well with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, this topic is so massive. And I know it's been a challenge for many of us over the last couple weeks to even open up this part of our world, to look at it, to examine it, to turn it around, and to offer it to you. But I pray that this wouldn't just be a sermon series or a topic that we think on for a few weeks, but that this would be the beginning of a process of transformation. That this would be the beginning of us learning to grow in how we love well. That you would reorder our hearts and our minds, that we would experience your presence as the God who incarnates himself, 
moves towards us in empathy and then sends us out into the world with that same mission. And especially as we close out this year, as we head into Christmas next week, that this would just be at the front of our mind and hearts and that we would embody you, that we'd be present where we need to be present and that we would experience the kind of inner healing emotionally, spiritually, and mentally that we need because of our exposure and experience of your love. We ask that you would do that in us and through us here at Springville and that ultimately you would get the credit and it would be your name that we would be made much of. We ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.